So, Renato, Trump's classified documents case has been assigned to Judge Eileen Cannon. Is this going to tank the case? Uh, It's complicated. I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm an ABC News legal contributor. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down into a soundbite or a tweet. So, Asha, you and I are both, we're both dressed up. Uh, you're all done up. Uh, we're, you're, I just came off a hit, a TV hit. You're getting on a hit. We've been talking all day about the arraignment of Donald Trump, right? What a moment in American history. Oh, my gosh. It's been nonstop. Do you feel a little bit, though, like the air was taken out by the New York indictment? I do think there's an element of that. A little bit. Like, I kind of wish that this had been in the first one. I, I, I don't really, I, you know, I don't, I, I was not, not a big fan of the, of the Bragg indictment. I try to be as fair about it as possible and talk to lots of uh, folks who practice in Manhattan and get a lot of perspective. But I saw a lot of problems with that indictment and I was, you know, I was not happy. But I'm just saying in terms of the moment. Right. I agree. Yeah. I mean, but I just think like why that needed to be brought, I don't know. Um, you know, it's like time to make the donuts. Like Trump's getting rain today, you know? <laughs> yeah, like it's just happening. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's happening and it's going to happen probably, I think, two more times. Yeah, I think at least two more times because I think there's other states that are following on from Fulton County. So that I think for sure. Oh, like Nevada or whatever. And then the January 6th thing is interesting. So I'm going to give you my conspiracy. I have a conspiracy theory. Okay. So I, I I did not believe that the indictment was going to happen last week. Um, Andrew Weissman was absolutely certain it was, right? He was tweeting, yeah. tweeting through that. I'm convinced he has some secret source. And so he's now 100% convinced that a January 6th indictment is coming out for Trump. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to bet. If I was a betting man, I'm going to bet on that because he, he, maybe he's got, you know, some, he's got some source that he's I don't know. He's the DOJ whisperer. He's yeah. got, yeah, there's something going on there. That's my, that's my conspiracy theory. Um, no, no actual knowledge. So don't come, don't come look. No, okay. no questions. And what did, I'm sorry, but what did he say that, that one will come or that it's going to come soon? Or 100% what? chance. He said 100%. Okay. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't oh. say a hundred percent chance that, you know, oh. the sun's going to rise tomorrow, but a hundred percent chance that he's going to be indicted in January 6th. That was his reason. That was his claim. But soon. I don't know, but I mean, okay. I think he All said right, that she, he was going to hundred percent. I think he said before Fannie Willis indicted or something. Along oh, those lines. and her <laughs> time window is July to September. Yeah. I think it was more like, yeah, I figured August for her. So yeah, I don't know. I bet I thought it was interesting. Um, but you know, we'll, we'll see. I, I definitely though, though think we're going to get a Georgia indictment and you know, I, I think there may very well be follow on cases from other States. So whether you know the Andrew's secret source is correct or not, I think there's going to be other indictments. So this will not be the last, almost certainly. And yeah, I do think it took the air out of things because this was the most serious one, I think. Yeah. And Henry has obviously strong, strong opinions about this as well. Um, <laughs> well, he cares about national security. Well, he's it's a it's a very yes, it's a very um, rough topic. So um, <laughs> <laughs> that's. 
<laughs> Whatever. That's a stepdad joke. Okay. In any event, um, in any event, getting back to the point, the, 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 the point of today. I mean, yes, arraignment's not a big deal in a lot of, in a criminal case. I'm sorry for everybody who's been watching the coverage all day. This is kind of like a ho hum day. It's a pretty standard procedure. Right. You know what the, the biggest days thus far in the, in the Trump prosecution has been is the, the wheel, the metaphorical wheel where, there is a computer program that you used to have an actual wheel, but they have a, a computer program that simulates that, that assigns judges. Okay. Let's just stop here for a second. Okay. Speaking of like conspiracy theories, because for me, I'm like, how can the stars align? Again, like what, what was the de denominator? Do we know how many judges in on the wheel? So it was actually very much lower than you think. So there's a great article that Char Char Charlie Savage wrote a fantastic article about this in the New York Times, where he talked to the clerk there, had an email exchange with the clerk who explained that they chose the West Palm Beach division. And there's very few judges there. And a number of them are senior status. And the judges who are already senior status, who are not active judges, have very limited caseloads. Some of them had already filled their caseloads for the year or the quarter or whatever, and they were not accepting new cases. So it was not surprising that the case was assigned to her. It was basically the gist. Yeah. It is what it is. And I know I, I literally had, I, I've been getting all, seeing all sorts of commentary about this. And one thing that people are saying is, well, how dare the prosecutors select the West Palm Beach division. And it's like, well, that's where the crime occurred. So I don't think they really had a lot of choice in the matter. It was just a purely a matter of fact. Yeah, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too much because I want to talk about Judge Luce Cannon. Um, but, you know, I think that it's important. We've talked about venue before and how you have to charge the crime where at least some of the conduct of the crime took place. And it seems like definitely at least now based on the conduct that's in the indictment, you know, they didn't even put in anything about him, like removing it from the White House and mm -hmm. bringing it down. I mean, they've started from the point where they are already on the property. And I don't know if this is correct, but. I do think, and I think Brian mentioned this in a previous podcast, that there could be an argument that if you were going to try to anchor this to D.C. based on the fact that he removed them from the White House and, and that removal was somehow illegal, then you could run into problems because I'm not sure of the timeline, but it could be that he left and landed in Mar-a-Lago before noon on January 20th. Right. He was still president when he left D.C. That was part of the issue. One thing I just, I mean, here's another, I don't, go, I don't know if you want to call it conspiracy theory or wacky idea, is this thought that, hey, maybe they've held back, they've got a D.C. indictment like in the works, or, you know, maybe that's like in their back pocket if Cannon tanks the case. And I think the reality of the situation is they probably don't. I think they put their eggs in this basket. Um, but it's an interesting basket because I think Cannon has a lot of control and we could talk about that. A district judge has a tremendous amount of control over the case. Yeah. So of all the judges and all the gin joints. Yep. And I guess it's really still not clear how many there were for her to, to, to land on her. She got it. She got it. And 
It's like wah wah, you know, <laughs> like, like Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> That's about as painful as a bankrupt gets. That's what I feel like we landed on anyway. Okay. Okay. Silver lining, there was actually a previous crazy case, a civil lawsuit that Trump filed that landed in her court. And she was total judge crazy cakes about it. And we know it. And so there's like a history. Like, in other words, imagine if we didn't know anything about her and we were going into this not really having any context, right? Because in many ways, Mm -hmm. that background now places a huge microscope on her and everything that she does. And, you know, she can go cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, but it's going to be like just reinforcing what everyone thinks. Like, in other words, that one wonders whether she might try to self-correct in order to prevent you know, this perception from continuing to take hold. Silver lining two. Okay, that is definitely, I agree with that. I'm going to, okay, I'm going to wait till you're done with silver lining two, the sequel. Okay. Silver lining two is that Trump has no reason to complain. I agree. That was what I thought you were going to go with the first one. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, come on, like, you know, oh, bias judge, whatever. Like, he's, I mean, he's going to, if she, if she so much as rules against him on anything, he's going to go bonkers, but it's going to be really hard for that charge to stick, no pun intended, um, you know, given, given what she's done. And then I think third silver lining here is third and last silver lining is that really where she can, I think, wreak havoc. First is all in all this pre-trial stuff, right? Like oh, in delaying or that, whatever. Uh, and I've here's got some the bad thing, news. though. Okay, well then uh, I want to hear more about it. Okay, but here's what I think: what we know about all the SEPA rulings, right, are that they are that you can have interlocutory appeals on those decisions. In other words, you know, it's not the kind of thing where she makes a bunch of bad rulings and you wait till the whole thing's over and then you can appeal all of these things like at that time. And so if she's making bad decisions on classified material, because remember we've talked about before that this case is really going to be about the tension between national security interests and the interests of a defendant is what makes it different than kind of your run of the mill criminal case. If she continues to tip the, the balance of that, uh, you know, tug of war always towards Trump and in in bad ways, the government does have a way to bring it up. And I think the, a pattern of bias will probably become clear, I suspect. All right. So let's just, okay. First of all, I agree with you. I'm going to just, I'll start by saying, I agree with you on uh, number two. Okay. Uh, The fact is uh, very going to be very tough for Trump to argue that he didn't, wasn't in front of a fair judge, wasn't in front of a judge who, was taking him seriously and that he didn't have a fair process as a result. To me, that's the biggest upside of this. I also agree with you that there's a, a reasonable chance, there is a chance, I don't know how reasonable chance, but there's a chance that she's going to see the light and realize that, you know what, I looked like a complete clown last time. I mean, she really was so outside the bounds of anything a judge had ever done in a criminal case. Um, it was absolutely bizarre. And she was called out by the Court of Appeals. I mean, it was embarrassing ruling by judges who were Republicans. Twice. She was called out twice. 
by Republican judges, including a Trump appointee. Okay. So that there, there's that. So it's possible that she's going to be like, you know what? I don't want to go down as a laughing stock. So I'm going to go that, you know, I'm going to, you know, try to, you know, play this straight. That's possible. That's possible. But a couple words of caution here. One is I want the, I want people to understand we're talking about, you know, you mentioned what DOJ could do. There are, there are some views and, and by the way, by some lawyers who I respect, uh, generally, but who I'd say are on the, uh, uh, you know, we joke that I'm sad panda. There's some people who are always like sunny Sally and they've always see everything. There's always a great answer for everything. Something that gets a hundred thousand retweets, uh, but maybe doesn't pan out. And one thing that is been getting a lot of traction lately is, oh yes, Judge Cannon has to recuse herself. She's got to, you know, she should be out tomorrow and it's the rules are super clear. and That's going to happen. The 11th Circuit has great case law on it. And I will tell you, I've talked to appellate lawyers in the 11th Circuit who tell me that it's not that way at all, that it's just, you know, very much like you've seen in other circuits, which is that, uh, you know, a judge has to, has the recusal decision herself on the front end. We all know Cannon's not going to decide that she's unfair. I mean, that would actually be a very, Another another way for her to handle this is just be like, hey, I'm going to let somebody else deal with this. She's not going to do that. And then if she's on the case, DOJ, ultimately, she's going to refuse their motion. It's going to go up on appeal. And it's an abuse of discretion standard. In other words, a court of appeals is going to decide whether she abused her discretion by by declining to recuse. Right now, DOJ doesn't have a lot of record to use against her. Right. Right. Which is just like, hey, you you issued this crazy ruling. You're you're um, bench slapped by the court of appeals. Um, I think that if that was the standard, it would be very easy for uh, litigants to judge shop. Which courts are very reluctant to allow you to replace the judge on your own motion because they know that you know lawyers like me who are paid to represent clients are going to do it in all sorts of cases. So you know, realistically, like they're going to do DOJ is going to do what you said, Asha. And they're going to wait for her to do something crazy and then make the motion at that time. And I think there's a possibility that they can make the motion. It can work. There's also a possibility that they can, they can pursue that. It doesn't work. And they're stuck with a judge who knows that they don't like her and they've publicly accused her of being unfair. And it's also possible that she plays her cards close to the vest and waits until the right moment to strike. Um, and we can get to that in a minute, but that that's, what do you, what do you think about that? So I guess I just had a couple of questions, which is, well, first, let's just talk, let's just let our listeners know kind of the standard for recusal, which is that judges are expected to recuse if they either cannot be impartial or if there is anything that might give the perception that they cannot be impartial, a perception of bias. So you know, you may be a judge and, you know, your son-in-law is before you arguing case and you feel completely like you can uh, assess this objectively, like probably not going to, that's not going to go over with the public because it just doesn't look good. You know what I'm saying? Right. And so I, I think it is important to kind of underscore that judges are both expected to assess their own ability, but also how it looks from the outside. Um, and I agree with you that loose cannon will not do that because I don't she's think she's a loose cannon. She's a loose cannon. She, um, <laughs> and I don't think that she's going to, ha- that 
I'll be honest, I don't think she has quite the self-awareness to really make those self and perceptional, you know, assessments. Okay. So I agree with you that, you know, to make a motion now would be premature for DOJ. If they were to make one, if she did some crazy ruling, could they then bring in her prior rulings from the fall? Because look, Mm -hmm. I think the the 11th Circuit standards that people have been citing, you know, as on the sad panda side that, you know, hey, this isn't going to happen, mm-hmm. which is that judges can't be recused for their rulings. In other words, their rulings can't be the basis or aren't usually the basis or, or you know, the appeals court isn't going to take that, give great weight to that. As you said, it's an abuse of discretion. But I feel like underlying that is an assumption that the underlying ruling was one made in good faith. Like, in other Mm -hmm. words, there was a um, reasonable and debatable legal issue. It did not come out well. And then, you know, you're going to argue that this is because the person is by the judge is biased. But here what you had was, first, the extraordinary step of exercising equitable jurisdiction to hear Trump's case. Equitable jurisdiction is about fairness. In other words, you only do it. And and Renato, you said that you've never heard of this being an outgrowth of, say, a search warrant, right? Right. Never. Doing this in this context, which is basically saying, I think that there might have been some unfairness mm-hmm. to Trump in the absence of any kind of evidence of misconduct or, or anything. True. And then in the course of that litigation, she explicitly states in one of her rulings, I forget which one, I, I think it was about justifying the equitable jurisdiction, that because he's a former president, that, you know, he that there is a greater risk of harm, of stigma, of being indicted. In other words, she actually articulated that she believed that the law applied differently to him because he was a former president. Right. It it's was like codifying she, she above it. the law, basically. Or not codifying. She codified but, yeah. above the law. Right. And, you know, and I think like that is the the key piece here. I think you could also add in that she was very cavalier about her approach to classified information. Because if you'll remember, DOJ made a motion to say, okay, like, let, we'll litigate the special master appointment. Can we at least have the classified documents back? Right. Like that seems like it's obviously not going to be anything that he could argue as being a personal record or, you know. And she said no. And that was the first appeal that went up. Remember? Mm-hmm. I do. And she got bench slapped for that. And the, and it was, I mean, that whole delay, like probably delayed this indictment for a little while. But it's like. This is a case that is going to involve her ability to have good judgment about national security issues. And she couldn't even make the most basic judgment that maybe nuclear secrets would not be covered by executive privilege and would certainly not be personal records. I mean, I'm sorry, that's just dumb. Like, I don't know, either she's incompetent or she's biased. And either way, that's not a good sign for the most important case in U.S. history. It's not a good sign at all. And I mean, I've got all sorts of bad news, uh, you know, which is not unusual for me, I suppose, in the in our <laughs> podcast. But uh, I feel like we need like sad but, tuba when you start giving your analysis. Uh, yeah, womp, womp. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. So I think we do. Um, but uh, one thing I'll just say about that, and, and one of the issues here is just this is, I, I agree with everything you're articulating. I agree with, I mean, her rulings were just so out there. I'd never seen anything. I remember having a big disagreement with a, a different legal <laughs> analyst about this that I talked to you about, where it's like, I have, there's no, I've never seen anyone make a request like this, much less get it granted in my life. But um, that said, you know, rulings and uh, how a judge is ruling, the fact that they don't get your case or they're, they seem to always rule for the other side is just not the sort of thing that typically leads to lend a recusal. And so it really creates, uh, you know, it's like you're trying to essentially get a one-off recusal ruling. Like, you know, how Bush versus Gore, it was like, they're like, well, this only applies in this one very narrow case of Bush and Gore and never, you know, has no presidential value. It's sort of like trying to get that done. And the irony, of course, is that that is why Cannon was doing this whole like former president thing. Like it only really this all my, my, I, you know, her ruling only right. applies when you're mm -hmm. a former president because basically. Yeah. Your average drug dealer who gets, you know, their house searched isn't going to be able to file a suit you know, requesting equitable jurisdiction. Oh, yeah. Otherwise, we, no one would get prosecuted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was the whole point. Oh. That was like, that's why it was so dumb. Right. Oh, you're going to search my client's office? Okay, well, we're going to have a bunch of civil litigation about that for a year. All right. Oh, another search warrant? Okay, that's another lawsuit. Like, you know, a rich defendant is just going to have lawsuits all over the place suing the government and keeping the government tied up in discovery. I mean, it's absurd. Uh, yeah. It's absurd. And don't forget that one of the bases for the bench slap was that she was violating separation of powers, that she was essentially interfering in, you know, the prerogatives of the executive branch. So my question is this. Let's say that recusal is unlikely unless she really goes off the rails and then, you know, maybe there could be some basis what about reassignment? Well, it's the same thing, right? I mean, is it though? Well, that's yeah, not I mean, what, we, that's not what Norm says in Slate. Okay, okay. What if Judge Cannon? Okay, quoting. But what if Judge Cannon does not recuse herself? One possibility that should be explored is for the Chief Judge of the District Court, Chief Judge Cecilia Altanaga, to reassign the case pursuant to the court's power under federal law to assign cases so far as local rules and orders do not otherwise prescribe. The chief judge should have a vigorous discussion with her under that provision. The chief judge can point to logistical concerns, including the security ones, in reassigning it to a judge in Miami. The logistical concerns being that Judge Cannon is the only judge for West Palm Beach or something like that, so that it would somehow impact the caseload there give away for Judge Cannon to save face and voila. Like it's, that's a great, that's a great idea. I mean, it's like more like a novel, like something that you're going to read, like a TV show than like a reality. <laughs> like, look, the chief judge might have that conversation, might not, but there's no reason to believe that that will happen. And there's no precedent for that, that I'm aware of. I mean, judges do, chief judges do have the power to assign cases, but they're assigned randomly for a reason. Chief judges do move those around for various reasons when there are very specific reasons to do so. So yes, it does happen. I mean, there are times, for example, in my district, that one of the judges was up for U.S. attorney, so they moved away her criminal cases when she was being considered. But like, I, I don't I don't know any reason why the chief judge is going to, in this very important case, be like, I'm going to interfere in this and move the ju judge assignment. Because talk about the conspiracy theories there. I just, I don't see it. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if that were to happen, then you would basically have like, you know, the chief judge would, yeah. oh my God, MAGA would go nuts. And yeah, so we're stuck with her. I think we're stuck with Cannon until and unless Smith makes a motion and the bets are off when what will happen then. It depends on how nutty she is. And I think the danger is she's like, I'm going to call her the Manchurian judge. Okay, there's the Manchurian candidate where they've got like some secret code words. She is. She's a secret cell. Well, the worst case scenario for Smith is that she's like super, she seems super super neutral. Like she's like, she's learned her lesson. And then she finds like some. And then she just, just yes, she snatches it it away. So for, so how does, how does the judge screw the case? I think we should talk about this. How can the judge screw the case over? Certainly you mentioned scheduling for sure. Judge has complete rule, have, it's pretty much complete discretion over her schedule and she could delay this case for a long time. That's one way. Second way is evidentiary rulings, okay? Oh, you have this fantastic crime fraud exception uh, uh, stuff that you got, all this court, you know, Corcoran's notes, Corcoran's testimony. I'm going to rule that's inadmissible. That's going to get reviewed later for abuse of discretion standard, okay? Evidentiary ruling, all right? So that's another way. So she doesn't have to give any weight to the fact that another judge had ruled that that was permissible? Like how would, then we would have just like this, uh, our system of justice would be paralyzed if there's no, I mean, well, I get a like final decisions in a, DC. I know, in yeah, a different, the, I get that, but like a procedural decision, I don't know. It's like, it, it feels like the, in the interest of comedy and, um, you know, sure. the, like some full faith and credit to your other judges in these tight, like on major, evidentiary like decisions all i would just say is trial judges make evidentiary rulings all the time okay that's one of their main sources of power in trials and to to usually to the chagrin of criminal defendants there all these questionable rulings get made and then they're reviewed on abuse of discretion standard and all of this other stuff and you know the court of appeals just like eh this is fair enough of a trial I, i think that was that's that's not let me put this way if she tosses that out that's not like her crazy rulings in the past where she's out on a limb. Like that's the sort of judgment that judges make and she can make all sorts of arguments about it. So that's one possibility. Here's a, here's another one. Jury selection. She ultimately gets to decide whether or not, so, you know, a, a cause challenge is, um, is uh, sustained, for example. So she could effectively give the Trump team lots of additional strikes. So there are some, so just to be clear, you can strike a juror for cause if there's a reason for them to be stricken for cause. And otherwise, in other words, they're like, I hate Trump and I'll never, could never judge him fairly. They're stricken for cause um, or the opposite. Um, but each side gets preemptory strikes or they're like, you know what, Asha, she just looks way too intelligent. We want her off our jury or something like that. Uh, you know, too educated for us. We don't like her experience in national security, whatever it might be. She could effectively wait the entire jury selection process for the Trump team, right? help them get their jurors on, effectively give them additional strikes, things like that. She also would have the opportunity to rule on a Rule 29 motion. So she, once the trial starts, she can, you know, there's a motion made at the close of the government's case saying that there's no, that no rational juror would find, even taking the evidence of the light most favorable to the government would find that. Like as a matter of law, there's no, uh, there's no like dispute of fact. Um, for a jury. 
Now, a lot of criminal defense attorneys go through their entire careers and, ne- and never see that ruling go in the defendant's favor. I actually had the great honor of having a judge find for my client that I, I, got, I won a Rule 29 motion on a conspiracy charge because the defendant, I literally got the defendant on cross to admit there was, he's accused of collusion. There's no collusion. Be, there's no criminal conspiracy between him and my client, which is, that's it. Like, you know, the, if that's the uh, co-conspirator says that, the government's witness, you, you, that's it. That's the case. Uh, and so the conspiracy count was rule 29. But if she does that, it's not reviewable on a, by a court of appeals. That's an important point. Wait, what? Yeah, <laughs> that's why I'm raising it. <laughs> So, well, because I think that was the motion um, in the Hutari case, the one that threw out the um, white Christian nationalist group that was being charged with seditious conspiracy. This was Barb McQuaid's case, and we talked about it. And what they do, this is the problem, though. I mean, because if she did it, that would be crazy because for the ju- the judge has to look at the evidence like in the mo- in the light most favorable to the government, sure. right? Like uh, let's assume all the things that they have alleged are right. true. It would not constitute a crime, <laughs> a violation of the Espionage Act, and it would not constitute obstruction of justice. Right. And this would th- this part where you know he lied that would not be false statement. Just as a Manjurian judge, like she seems super reasonable, gives her no reason to recuse. That's really crazy, Renato, because that is. You could see, like, that would be the time to strike. And then what, what would you do? Nothing. You're screwed. It's like, so it's like, this is, if you imagine, like, so Norm wrote a fantastic op idea. If you had evil, I did not know that evil those Norm Eisen with, like, a goatee, like, from Star Trek, the evil Norm Eisen, you could write an op-ed with this. Like, maybe, ju- you know, the judge would do this. This would be, like, an evil plan. I think you should write this op-ed. <laughs> I think you need to get it out there so people are already watching for it. Okay. Yeah, I think that. I think you should. Uh, so that's the biggest problem. Now, what judges often do, what they often do is they will delay a ruling. Well, they often don't grant that motion. They all, almost never do. And what they usually do is they defer it till after the evidence. In other words, what they say is, I'm going to wait till after the defense case until a- and, and after the jury verdict, and then I'm going to make my decision. And if they do it at that point, if the jury rules and finds the defendant guilty, and then the judge makes a determination on Rule 29, then it's reviewable by the Court of Appeals. That's usually how judges do it. But I did have, in my experience, I genuinely... Well, Judge Cannon ain't doing that. Right. Judge Cannon ain't doing anything that she that can be reviewed. <laughs> right? Right. And I, and it does happen. I mean, it, like I said, I've literally had that happen for one of my clients. It was deserved in his case. He ended up not being convicted of anything. Okay. He got, he, you know, he didn't get convicted on any count. But... Um, for what it's worth, um, you know, that is the biggest danger uh, for uh, Judge Eileen Cannon. So, I, I mean, she's this is this is a real game changer. Yeah. And I sure that Smith's team considered it, but it's it's a very, very significant problem. You have to imagine that they sat around and were like, we can either try to, you know, maybe they had some possible basis to charge it in D.C. and then risk it being thrown out, which could be prejudicial right like because that's a constitutional issue and i'm not up to speed on all of the intricacies but i think there's a supreme court case that could also impact that in terms of the ability to try it again etc etc and then they said well we could file it in florida where there won't be any venue issues which also eliminates like litigation over venue and and delays from that and we're gonna roll the dice and hope we don't get judge cannon and they got her 
They got her. Yeah, I, they got her anyway. Well, I will just say, I mean, look, if this was United States versus Asher and Gapa, okay, they were they were indicting you. They would they would potentially indict you in D.C. and charge you with only what they could in D.C. Just to screw, like, okay, it's just more convenient for us to do it in D.C. And there's you know judges that are gonna you know play ball with our you know various. So like split the indictment. So like illegal removal in DC and then they would, all they would do in DC is they might do the obstruction and a few other counts. Like if you're just, what I'm saying it's just you and you've got to pay your own legal bills. You're just some, or yeah. just John Doe, random Joe, who's like got to fight the United States government in a national security case. Who's going to roll over. They'll just do it that way. And they're, they're like, screw Florida. Let's uh, instead of wasting our resources, educating a judge down there, we got all these judges in DC who handle these cases all the time. Let's just charge them with three counts, do it up here and yada, yada, yada. You could see that happening. But in this case, if they took that approach and they did get a conviction in DC, you know, that Trump's supporters would go, you know, ballistic, right? And they'd have some argument there that he was, you know, this happened in Florida, but they charged it in D.C. to get him or whatever. And they right. they would have done that to John Doe. But I think this is an, an instance in which they felt like they had to, you know, appear as fair as possible. They did it in Florida. Now they're paying the price. Yes, they are. So, Asha. Before we go, I heard through the grapevine, you're not going to be here next week. What's up with that? No, I am going to visit some girlfriends in Rome, Italy. Oh, my God. Oh, I am totally jealous. That is, Rome is one of my favorite places to visit. I'm going to be here with Brian Greer talking about <laughs> national security. <laughs> and you're going to be drinking wine in Italy, uh, laughing at us. That's going to be great. Yeah, I feel like one of the perks of having friends who are in academia is that they get grants to go places to do research. So I have a friend who teaches art history at Tulane, and she teaches um, Byzantine art, I think. Italian art, something like I don't know, um, but but it makes it means that she has to go hang out in Italy a wow. lot. And I mean, talk about like I missed the memo on life choices, on like you know career choices and things like that. Um, but anyway, so she basically goes to Italy every summer, and you know ends up with a fat pad and is like come visit and hang out. And I, the last time I did this was in 2017. Right after, like right when all of the Trump crazy was starting, he had just fired James Comey and and all this stuff, and I was just getting hired with CNN. Oh, wow. And then since then, between the news cycle and then COVID, where you know she wasn't going for a couple of years, and then everything else, um, I and then my kids, you know, having other camp, whatever they're doing, I just haven't been able to go back. And this year, I was like, you know what, I'm doing it. And I'm going to go and I'm going to go shoe shopping and I'm going to drink wine and, you know, find somebody to take me around Rome on a Vespa. Wow. It's not hard to do when you're Asher and Gapa. You just sort of. <laughs> That's one of my favorite memories from when I backpacked across Europe uh, with, you may remember um, my roommate, uh, she and I backpacked across Europe and 
my favorite memory is um, these two very nice Italian men who had Vespas that we met and just took us around at midnight, like riding around Rome in oh, like yeah. a full moon. You know, Super it was fun. Nice. It was very, it was very Italian. Like it was should have been a movie. Wow. But you are Italian. I am. I, I don't. I don't drive a Vespa though, so it's not as nearly <laughs> as romantic when you're driving a woman around in a Hyundai. So it's just not the same. <laughs> But so who, what generation immigrated here? Your grandparents? Yeah. So my grandfather immigrated here um, on a boat between the world wars. I actually have like a sketch of the boat and everything and the whole story, like the signature at Ellis Island and all that stuff. There's a cool historical society you can get that stuff from. So my grandfather, who had the same name as me, is who I was named after, immigrated here. But then other than that, it was my great-grandparents. But I'm Italian both sides. So, you know, my father's side of the family was Tuscan. My mother's side was Sicilian. And um, it's a remarkable thing. There was no deaths at the wedding. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> the Tuscans, uh, people in Northern Italy do not like the Southern Italians at all. There's like they actually have a North-South divide, isn't there? There That's is. Well, there's like too. a secession thing in the North. It's, so, it's the opposite of the U.S. In the North, they wanted to secede because they don't want to pay for social services for people in the South. So there's like the Lombard League uh, was like a, a political party. Yeah. So my grandmother wore black to the wedding. Uh, true story. Stop it. True story. My mom still talks about that to this day. She's still upset about it. That's Crazy, really huh? funny. So do you speak Italian? Not much. Not much. I know like the guidebook stuff. I, go, I usually bone up on my way to Italy. Like if, you know, I'll like re- read the stuff in the guidebook, you know, so I can, if I can, I have a good accent with it. I could sound good, but uh, I don't really understand anything. When so. was the last time you went back or have you gone back? Years ago now. I, I tried to go to different places. We went to the Rhine like last time, right? I think that I talked to you about that. I went to you did. Amsterdam and Germany and France and Switzerland like that. That was someplace new. We hadn't been to that area. To but you Rhine can't West. be Italy. Or is, is it because that's your heritage and culture that it's sort of like, Meh. Like you want to do other like it's, you I mean I don't necessarily stuff. feel that India is meh, but I've been there enough. Like it's sort of like Yeah, it's you old know. school. It's old hat. It's, by it's now. like yeah, Worn out. it's my Played it's, out. There's, a, there's a lot of other stuff also woven in, you know what I mean? Like it's not just going to a, a a different country and just exploring or whatever. Yeah, it's sort of like I've eaten enough pasta and pizza and things like that for like the first twenty years of my life to kind of I'm good for the rest of my life. Uh, yeah, I think there's an element of that. Whereas, like, I discovered Indian food when I was in law school, and I was like, "Whoa, that's amazing!" Like that suddenly, that's like super. That's like my favorite kind of food. Uh, have you been to India yet? I have not. That's like on my list. Now that's way more exciting to me right now because I'm like, I've never been to India. I want to take yeah. like the train. Like, there's like a yeah. cool train you can take. Like. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're in our one of our future podcasts, we'll talk about India. Well, we should do it. From, we should do our podcast from India. It would be. Oh my way, god! I can't go fun. to India because I make fun of Modi on Twitter. Oh really? Yeah. Is, I think it's like making fun of Putin. Like, like you end up in, in a gulag. It kind, not totally. But <laughs> okay. sort of, I feel like. Wow. So I could go to India and then I'll be the one like laughing while you're, you know, you're stuck in the United States. That's our. Thing. Yeah. Yeah, okay. there's and there's a lot of like uh, right wing Indian nationalist trolls who like whenever I say anything bad about India or Modi, like swarm wow. me. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Why? Well, so we'll don't talk like about all too. that. This is for a future thing, but for, for a next week, episode. I'm. It's pasta. It's shoes. It's wine, and 
um, wow. girls night every night for a week. Uh, that sounds like a lot of fun to me. <laughs> M-S-W-Media.